welcome to Return to Zero. Navigating a career as an artist and producer within the music industry is a formidable challenge at the best of times. Balancing the creative requirements and aspirations associated with fronting a successful signed act, whilst also developing that artistry through considered solo and collaborative projects is no easy feat. Add to that a steady roster of engineering and production duties, working with a host of bands and artists ranging in style, genre and imagination, and you've got the type of workload that can only be sustained by a dedicated few passionate about their craft. Chris McCrory is a prime example of just such a figure. From his engineering origins at local studios in Glasgow, to gaining a deserved respected reputation drumming with the band Casual Sex, and now still leading the charge with Catholic Action, whose second album Celebrated by Strangers came out in March 2020, just as the Covid pandemic started going through its destructive gears. I caught up with Chris in April 2021 to hear firsthand how he keeps on top of all the demands that come with creating music and working with sound, his early inspirations and motivations, and how he has negotiated a recalibration of his working practices in light of the current circumstances. Hi Chris, thanks so much for taking the time to speak with us. I wanted to start by finding out about how your present time is taken up, given the restrictions and impact on those operating within the music industry. As a producer and songwriter, what's the current nature of your working days and what are the workarounds you've adopted as a result of the pandemic situation? Hmm, well, I never thought I'd have to wear a mask behind, <laughs> behind the mixing desk, a surgical mask, which is quite unusual. Been really fortunate to keep been able to sort of keep working away. I mean, obviously, when lockdown kicked off, there was a good few months of maybe three, four months of just staying, staying at home, basically. And I mean, it just gave me a chance to sort of I've been I've wanted to work on a solo record for years and years and years and years and years and never quite done it. So it kind of gave me a chance to just sort of I mean, I had a, a you know clear slate, so I'm just going to sit and work on my own stuff. But um, as a producer, I mean, I've been back in the studio from about July. It's really kept me quite positive. I mean, obviously at the start of lockdown, there's a lot of engineers and producers that I know were, you know, talking amongst ourselves and we really thought that we probably wouldn't have a job by this point. You know, we really thought that there'd be no one left to, to record and, and nowhere left to record it. But, um, you know, music hasn't stopped. You know, bands have been kicking the door down basically to, to try and get into record. I've been unusually busy. Uh, and I'm just really, really, really grateful for that. I honestly didn't think I'd, I'd be able to. But yeah, there's a lot of, a lot more remote mixing. In terms of other workarounds, I mean, it's just been, obviously things have just been a bit more precarious in terms of like booking studio time. Uh, we've had to move quite a few things, you know, here and there but for the most part the biggest the biggest thing is just you know people asking you do I need to keep my mask on when I'm doing a vocal take thankfully uh thankfully no I mean just uh yeah just being really cautious and making sure people are being sensible beforehand and you know there's been a lot of this the, I've been using the those drop-in test centers there was one in the south side of Glasgow Govan Hill and there was one at the central mosque uh, I think they're shut now, but they were really, really useful. It was those lateral flow tests. So, you know, at the end of every week of sessions or at the start of every week of sessions, I'd kind of go in and uh, 
get a test, kind of run by the army, and you'd get your test results within like half an hour. So that was kind of that was brilliant. I really kind of hope they keep those sort of things up. I think that will make things a lot easier. You know, because obviously you want artists to be kind of comfortable in the studio, so you don't want to be running a session with people who are worried that they're going to get sick and get their family sick. So, yeah, just a lot of sort of precautions. But for the most part, things have been as they always have been, thankfully. When you're speaking about remote mixing, have you had to utilise any particular software that allows you both to experience the playback in real time? Or has it not been an issue? I know a few people that have done that sort of thing, but the way I like to work it, I kind of generally when I'm mixing, I tend to prefer to sort of work on my own, at least for the initial mix, and then send. I, I just feel like I do, I've always done a sort of better job when I've had, you know, the opportunity to get to get into the headspace that I need to be in to do the mix. And, you know, also it's, it's kind of boring for artists, I guess, if they're, they're sitting there while you're like tweaking a gate on a kick drum kind of thing. So I usually just you know, I'll maybe spend a day or two getting the mixes to where I'm happy with them and then I'll send them to the artist and then we'll have a kind of back and forth. So I've not actually had to use any remote sort of broadcasting software, but I know a few people that have, but it's not, not something that I've done. Are there any new working practices that you've adopted and would be keen to continue post-COVID? It forced me to set up a really decent mixing space, which I've never, ever had before. I know it's mad, but I've always mixed in kind of weird rooms that I've always had to kind of fight and second guess myself. So for the first time ever, I sort of have constant access to a room that's been treated with decent monitors. And, you know, for remote mixing, you know, I want to be able to do remote mixes that are just as good as they would be if I was doing them in, a, in an actual sort of commercial facility. So I'm definitely going to keep that up. I think it's maybe made artists realize how precious studio time actually is and i think there's been a bit more well, a lot of the bands i'm working with because of the sort of precariousness of the situation we're doing a lot more solid pre-production and bands are really you know because i mean obviously the, the type of bands that are still going are, are powering through this so the ones that are going to be you know serious enough anyway to want to keep doing it despite everything and on top of that, I think they're realising that, you know, the rug could be pulled out from under them any minute and the sessions could be cancelled and, you know, just depending on, you know, whether the situation is getting better or worse. So pe the people that I have been working with seem to, you know, be getting, getting their shit together a bit more, you know, before they, before they go into the studio, I think, which is, which is really good. And, you know, it's, I mean, for example, there, la or sorry, actually, no, this week, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, I was in doing, we were, well, we were planning on doing four songs for an artist that I was working with, but because we'd done so much prep beforehand, we absolutely flew through it and we ended up doing eight. And it's really nice having that kind of, I don't know, just I think the people that are doing it are, are you know, okay, they're dedicated enough to take it seriously. So they really, you know, they're taking every aspect of it seriously, which I quite like. So it's something I'm definitely going to push for moving forward that, you know, we actually really get serious about pre-production and stuff, you know. Thinking in a wider context, the music industry is defined and reacts as a result of significant events, whether that be technological development, consumer demand, the social climate at the time, etc. Have you identified any indicators that give you clues as to how the industry might adopt or evolve once the pandemic has been resolved? 
Um, I'd like to think, or I hope, that there's going to be a sort of strong DIY resurgence in the sort of you know grassroots community and within like indie music and alternative music. I really, really, because it's been. I feel like it's been kind of desperate for something like that. You know, it's. I feel like the last maybe five or six years, the industry itself has been in sort of dire need of a bit of a shake up. I don't know if I'm just nostalgic for the way Glasgow's music scene was ten years ago, but I feel that there was there was a much stronger DIY community with there was a lot more. You know, people just putting on gigs for themselves in any any space they could find. You know, be it a flat on West Princess Street or, you know, in some dingy bar, somewhere. Or and and along with that, those bands that were involved with that, there was a really strong uh, community of you know, like sort of wee small labels doing things. And that's kind of how I got started. So I was you know really lucky to basically bump into a guy, the guy that ran uh, a small label called Fuzzkill Records. You know, basically the first day I was in I was in uni, I, I bumped into him, he's like, oh, are you Chris McCrory? And I was like, yes, are you Ross Kepi? And then that was it. And I ended up, you know, recording tons of those. That was sort of how I kind of learned. I, he would just send me all his bands that he was working with. And, you know, a lot of my experience, my early experience anyway, was just recording all those bands. and. I feel like the last few years it's kind of been missing. I think bands have gotten, with things like social media and stuff, bands have kind of sort of there's they've lost a bit of their sort of local identity, and they've also got really like savvy as to how to promote themselves. And so that the, there's a lot of like bands that would would appear really really professional from the word go, but but really aren't. You know, and I just and, and you know they they go through this sort of accepted sort of industry channels. You know, like you know they'll, they'll try and work with all these local promoters and and you know tick all these boxes when really the real magic came from people just going, do you know what? Screw this. We're putting the gig on ourselves. We're going to put our four favorite bands on. And do you know what? We've uh, we've made our own label as well, and we've pressed up our own record. And and here you go. And now it's this little you know it's a real community that you can kind of buy into. That's not sort of totally cynical and focused on like buzz and image too much it's focused on to me what actually matters which was the you know the songs and the music and the the community spirit of it you know people just getting together and doing something because they love doing it so i really hope that if you've I mean if you've been fortunate enough to to not be sick and not lose your job or you know then you've probably had time to to sit and think and maybe reprioritize things in your life and i, I really really hope that you know it's going to put a lot of focus back on on what actually matters within music as well and I, and I, I think it'd be really good for young bands in, in Glasgow and the surrounding area to really dive or really just you know get the finger out and just make something again you know make something for themselves again like I just I, I've really missed that sort of thing the last sort of five or six years I mean like I said it's it's how we got started and it's it was the people that were doing that you know when I was really young that really inspired me um to to get into that sort of thing. Social media is definitely a topic I wanted to touch on and revisit later, but in light of what you just said, it felt like initially social media was the natural digital progression for developing that DIY aesthetic that you spoke of. 
But then it very quickly seemed to become in some ways a cul-de-sac for a lot of bands, who end up obsessing more about online image rather than the substance of what they should be creating and focused on. Yeah, well, it's just, it's like, it's just, instead of, you know, skipping the really exciting part of being in a new band and focusing on what matters, it's like you go straight into being your own sort of PR person and, you know, you spend a lot of your time, you or you meet bands that spend a lot of their time thinking more about what picture they're going to put up next as to whether or not the chorus is strong enough in their song. Um, yeah, it's just, I, I think it's just the nature of social media, isn't it? I mean, it's so image focused and it's all really about selling you stuff that you don't need. And, and to me, it just kind of, it just cheapens something that's real. And also, I kind of felt that in the UK in the last five years or so, maybe it's always been like this. I mean, we're, we're so lucky here in that, you know, if you're in somewhere like London or Glasgow or Manchester or any of the larger cities, any ba- any sort of touring band that comes through from anywhere in the world is probably going to play here, you know. And I think it's kind of fosters an attitude of people taking live music maybe for granted. Whereas if you... I feel from my own experience, you know, uh, playing in bands and stuff, as soon as you... As soon as you leave the UK and play somewhere like France or Germany or just anywhere else that's not here, even in America and stuff, there's a real appetite and a real appreciation for the performance and the the artistry of it. You know, it's, it feel it really feels like an occasion. Whereas I think here we're almost spoiled, and I think I think we've kind of taken things. I've I've just I just feel like it's sort of taken for granted that there's always going to be live music, and I really hope that. You know, this is going to really, really remind people that live music is essential and important for people. And from the, the, the music itself to the actual like human connection of, you know, standing, dancing with your pals and, you know, f- literally, f- you know, feeling the bass. And I, th- I, I really hope that um, that in tandem with the, the DIY thing will be, you know, very much at the forefront of people's minds when when things do actually open back up and... I remember reading the, it's like an old Sonic Youth biography and, you know, it's like Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore talking about their first experiences of playing over in the UK, like, like all the, the, the live bands weren't as good and also everyone was so image obsessed and it just, I think it really put them off playing here and it was only through my own experience that I'd be like, all right, I totally, I totally get that about the UK. But no, I think there's, there's a lot, there's just, there's, Ultimately, I'm 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 really excited and I'm really positive because it's not stopped, you know. And a lot of the artists that I work with, they don't have budgets and they don't have labels. But regardless, you know, it's, they're just running on pure passion, and you know, it's it's just nice to be reminded in in black and white that it doesn't matter what's going to happen. There's always going to be music. There's always going to be people that want to make it. I just hope that the environment in which they do that is going to be a bit healthier once things open back up again yeah the potential for it certainly is there we've had or are having this unique opportunity to take stock of how we've been doing things in every aspect of life and if the will is there to show determination and resolve to recalibrate everything from work-life balance to societal events as you say we've been guilty of taking for granted the simple act of going to a gig with your mates and it's strange to think that for a generation of young people who would have under normal circumstances experienced their first gig or festival. That simply hasn't been possible for the past year or so. I do agree, however, that it's potentially exciting, at this point, of what we could experience and achieve in the not-too-distant future. Yeah, it's, uh, it's 
a real opportunity. When we spoke with Paul Savage a while back, he was highlighting the fact that, as a label, Chemical Underground was kind of on a hiatus. And one of the reasons he alluded to was that he believed the dust was yet to settle on the implications of digital streaming. Can you envisage a future in which a recalibration from the present situation occurs, in which the majority of artists are currently so poorly recompensed by streaming services like Spotify? I'm not too sure. I mean, I've seen that there's some musicians that I'm really into that are out in Los Angeles that are... I know they've literally been outside protesting at the Spotify offices. I mean, I don't know. And I don't know if it's wishful thinking on my part. I'd really, I'd really like to see a future like that because I just don't know. I don't know how it's sustainable to 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 keep things going like that. And I think ultimately, quality will suffer. Like I feel that if you compare, you know, the industry from a long time ago, you know, speaking to people like Paul. You know, your mind's blown by how much, you know, money was pumped into bands, even bands that we wouldn't consider to be big nowadays. You know, I think that artist development is a really, really, really important thing. And I think it's totally missing. The The example I always talk about is, I'm kind of going off on a tangent here, but the example I always talk about is like, if you think about Pink Floyd, you know, from from the said Barrett record up until Dark Side of the Moon, like the trajectory of the band and the way that they grow is so so I don't know if you're a fan of them or not and I, I can't like I can do yeah, definitely early Floyd <laughs> yeah I can do up until me, me and Andrew the our Catholic Action guitar player say that you can do Pink Floyd up until the end of side one of Wish You Were Here and then after that forget about it you know uh, but the, like it's just really interesting for me as like a producer to, to like listen to the you know and as an artist to, to listen to the development of a band that I mean obviously you know they, they were they, they did well but they weren't stratospherically huge until you know like Dark Side of the Moon and it's just it's interesting to to hear them develop over that time because they were given the chance and the funding to, to do that and I, I get the impression companies like Spotify you know they're just gonna they're gonna rinse people for all the, you know for all they're worth and it's the this, I mean it's the music industry all over it's like it's like these sort of local promoters or whatever that that, that scam you know bands out of you know that try and get them on these crappy ticket split deals and stuff like that when really they should just be you know doing it themselves like we were talking earlier uh, so yeah I mean and I think it's it's difficult because people are always going to want to make music and people are always going to want to be rock stars and they'll do anything it takes and I think Spotify kind of has everyone hostage at the moment you know it's like the big it's the big it's the streaming service that you want to get added to playlists on or the artists want to get added to playlists on but equally they're paying them absolutely nothing interestingly I think um so I don't I don't really know how how they're going to fix that I mean it's the side of the you know I, recently the last sort of year or two I've started to just focus on what really matters to me and what's exciting to me. Almost like I'm trying to keep myself in a sort of state of like creative innocence in a way. Like I don't really like to think about the industry all that much. I just like to think about is this song good? Is the recording that I'm making of the song good and interesting? And does the artist like it? And does the artist feel that their vision is, you know, being brought to life by this? And because from from experience, the more the more I interfaced with the actual industry side of it, the the more I disliked it. 
So I was just like, do you know what? I, I really enjoy playing live and I really enjoy making records and I'm going to keep myself in that headspace and hopefully things will be all right. But I was reading something the other day. I'm going to, you know, have you heard of those uh, NFT things? You know, it's like non-fungible tokens or something like that. And all these, it's like, it's like a blockchain thing and people are selling like digital art on it. Yeah, some guy the other week sold a digital piece of art on it for like $69 million. Even though that you could you could Google that piece of art right now and, and look it up on your computer and, and view it. So, it, but it's like the, the NFT is like the, it's just basically a blockchain token that says you own this digital image, even though everyone else can look at it. So I reckon that quite a lot of artists are going to start trying to monetize that they've not i'm not sure if anyone's done it yet but i think i think that's coming like i mean I, I would even be tempted to do it if there was a way i could work it you know to to put a record out uh on that you know selling some sort of exclusive nft record i would try and do that because i think the way it works is so say damien Hurst or whatever sells some nft of his art and it goes for like i don't know 10 million or something he gets a percentage of that 10 million and he also gets a percentage of any future sale of that nft token thing so i think it's only a matter of time before musical artists kind of cotton onto that thing and whether or not it actually helps people or whether or not you know i imagine that the major label artists will just kind of shove everyone out the way and Kanye west will start selling like exclusive nfts of you know whatever whatever single he's doing next and then you know fair play to him but so it, it, but equally it could also be another way for sort of more up and coming and alternative artists to make a bit of cash. E equally though, I think that there's definitely more of a push towards the sort of cooler artists just moving to things like Bandcamp. There was a really cool record I found the other day. It's a guy called Floating Points and he did a record with Pharaoh Sanders, that old like cosmic jazz guy. And it's absolutely amazing. I mean, it proper, I mean, I'm really into like all this Alice Coltrane stuff that he did and it, it I mean, obviously the floating points guys it seems like he's kind of in awe of that style of making music so it's it's sort of a hark back to to that stuff but anyway so i went to try and buy it and it's it's totally sold out everywhere but the way he's got his band camp set up just like any other like small up and coming artist you know i mean you can go buy you know you can go and buy the record directly from him on his band camp even though he's like you know a huge sort of established artist selling enough of his his record, so I wonder if there'll just be more of a movement to to that kind of thing until spot you know places like Spotify change their their practices. But yeah, they do have a complete an art stranglehold over over up and coming artists, and it's, it can be very very disheartening if you ever look at your like PRS statement and see how many plays you've had on Spotify, and then look at how much you're actually getting from that. Yeah, it's uh, it's not good. Yeah, the Bandcamp thing is interesting, as I've had an account for many years and then mainly just bought a couple of bits and pieces here and there. I would say largely from friends or acquaintances. But when Bandcamp Friday started up, it almost reintroduced me to the concept and what it was trying to achieve. And I'm sure many others have had a similar experience as it's proven very popular with both artists and music consumers alike. It just feels a bit more personal as well. I mean, it's nice. It's nice knowing that this money is going to go straight into the artist's paypal account or whatever you know it's really nice it's really nice knowing that um as opposed to you know going to hmv or 
or Amazon even worse, you know. Yeah, I think it's just until, I mean, really, I, I reckon the vast majority of music has still been consumed through streaming services. So like really until, because I mean, you, it's, I suppose in a way it's easy to kind of point all the blame at Spotify, but I mean, I think record labels themselves, I think what you were saying earlier about indie labels getting together and saying, you know, you know what, now we're you know, having a bit of a stand, stand against this stuff. I think it's going to be up to, as much as it's up to Spotify, it's also going to be up to the major labels to be like, you know, wait a minute, you know, you need to, you need to do something about this, but I don't know, <laughs> you know, given the way major labels always have been, I don't really know if that's ever going to happen. Yeah, it kind of feels a bit like the music industry equivalent to the climate crisis. You really need all the major players involved to recognise the issues and have the resolve to find solutions that benefit the industry as a whole, to not be selfish and self-serving, and that's quite an ask. You've been involved within the music industry for a number of years now. Can you talk a little about your experience of dealing and working with different record labels? Either as an artist yourself with your own band, collaboration projects, or when you've been producing other acts? Is the relationship simply defined by the personalities involved, or is it more complicated and nuanced than that? I think it can be really, really complicated, unfortunately, at times. It depends on, I mean, it really depends on, it could depend on anything, ultimately. I mean, we've had good relationships with labels and we've had difficult relationships with labels, and we've had relationships that were so difficult with labels that I've had to write a song about it and name <laughs> name a real person in it and he knows about it and he knows it's about him because I've spoken to him do you know what I mean I think there was part of me that's like yeah okay this is a bit offensive but also I think you know Mark an executive at a record label his ego would probably quite like to have had a you know a song written about how much of a bastard he is so yeah I mean it really depends and I think I think for artists that are thinking of working with labels or management or agents or anyone in the industry I think it's really 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 important that you are on the same page and that you're both pulling in the same direction and they have this a similar-ish definition of your music as you do and you and they have a similar-ish vision for your music as you do because I think just like an artist and a producer can work or not work together a, a label and an artist or a, an agent and an artist or a manager and an artist can can work and not work together I think it's really important that bands consider that especially younger bands you know it's hard to learn about this sort of thing it's it's hard to and also because it's so it's so random as well the way it happens there's not really a set way of this is how you get a manager or this is how you get a record label and every manager is, works quite differently and every record label works well kind of differently or their approach is different or yeah I think and I think a lot of bands are maybe quite quick to you know as soon as someone approaches them to just immediately jump and go oh my god yes let's do this this is amazing and then quickly rush into something that they're like oh wait a minute this guy or this label don't really know what what it is we're about and they have quite a different conception of what it is we're actually about as a band and they're throwing their weight behind the band going this way when actually we want to do this and we're really uncomfortable with that and and, and things sort of break down so 
you know, it's important to, to be on the same page. But equally, you know, we've had, you know, we've been quite lucky and the labels and managers and agents have also done really good things for us. But it's just, yeah, the, the, main, the main takeaway I've had from my experience in that is it's not essential that you have a label or a manager or an agent and that if you do have one or you're considering one, that A, you trust them, like you really do trust them implicitly, especially if it's management. And uh, B, you're both on the same page artistically and where you'd like to go. Because I think, again, the, and the other thing I'd say to any young bands or whatever, considering that sort of path, is, uh, you know, not to rest on your laurels. I think a lot of bands, as soon as they get a manager or an agent or a label, they go, oh, we've made it. We don't need to do anything anymore. They're going to take care of everything. When actually the opposite it's kind of true. It's like, okay, now the hard work really begins. We now have a platform and like a team behind us where we can like get things done quicker and more effectively. Now we actually really should put the foot on the gas pedal and, and go for it kind of thing. I think people tend to, younger bands tend to see that as, you know, getting a manager is like, oh, that's the be all and end all. They're going to do everything for us. But I think like just like a producer, those relationships are, are, are a two-way thing. You know, they're only going to be able to work with what you give them yeah uh, but no one no one ever tells you that you know no one ever tells you any of these things it's all you all find it you know you find these things out by chance and if you're lucky you it works out for you but yeah that's that's my takeaway from my experience in the industry so far but uh, yeah just be really you know be true to yourself if it doesn't feel right don't do it you know w with anything in, in music because it ultimately Depending on where you fall on the, the sort of continuum of I'm an artist or I want to be famous, you know, that should kind of gauge you as to whether, you know, and I, and, I, and I feel I tend to fall obviously more towards the I want to be an artist and make something really meaningful to myself side of things. And if you do that, then you have to accept that you might not be as big as Taylor Swift, but equally you, you'll do something that's really true to you and the people that you work with will believe in what you do. And you know, so it's it's all it's all a big trade-off, but it's important to be kind of comfortable with yourself, and 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 by extension, the team around you should also be on the same page. Sorry, that's a total. Talking about like ten thousand things at once here, but it's a it, it, it's all quite they're, they're, it's all sort of interconnected, and they're all quite there's there are similar lessons to be applied to each aspect of it. Absolutely, and I think it's excellent words of advice particularly with regards to making sure you understand your own aspirations and trying to ensure that any managerial, producer or label relationships are established with a clear understanding from all parties involved what the goal is, whether that's to be true to your craft as an artist and creator or indeed if the aim leans more towards the be famous category, clarity is key. Yeah, you know, I always say to bands when I'm working with them, it's like, it's a really difficult thing to do and, and, and to make money out of. You know, it's a lot of effort for not much return uh, in terms of money. I mean, obviously, like, I think if, you, if you're going to put that much effort into something, you may as well do it true to yourself. You may as well do it in a way that feels good for you and feels right to you because, I mean, you're going to, once you do record it, you're going to be expected to go up on stage and sell it. So if it's not, if it doesn't feel right to you, then you probably shouldn't be, you know, you probably shouldn't be doing it. 
But then equally on the other side, it's like the, the really great quote I heard about, um, I, I don't know where, I heard it on like Radio 4 years and years and years ago before I really, I think it was probably like when I was still in college or something and it was a girl and she turned around to her granddad when she was really young and said, oh, granddad, I want to be an artist. And he turned to her and said, well, you might not be rich, but you'll have a really, really rich life. And I think that's really true. And I think people should, you know, people should just keep that in mind. They shouldn't do things that are that are totally soul destroying. If you do things that are that feel right to you, and if the label's working for you, and everyone around you's working for you, then it will feel good for you, and things will probably go a bit better. You know, I think there's a lot of pe- a lot of people feel tempted to kind of again, it kind of comes back into like social media and and all sorts. It's almost like there's a way to behave as an artist. You know, I find that really boring. There's like a there is no set path because it's art. You know, the only set path is the one that's within you. You know, and I think more people should really look for that and not look externally for what they think is fashionable or what they think they should be doing. Yeah, no, absolutely. Now, I wonder if we can perhaps begin to don our technical anoraks. You've worked as an engineer since you were a teenager, so have chalked up a really significant amount of studio time. And I wonder if you could talk a little about how you found your studio approach developing over that time and how you made that transition into full-blown production. Yeah, well, I think I just always thought of myself as kind of a producer because I sort of got into recording to to be able to record my own songs really well. Like I wanted to just, I'd had some weird experiences in studios when I was like 16, 17, and I was like, you know, with kind of stuffy old engineers that were obviously really better and, I just found them to be really square and unhappy. And I was like, I'm going to do this. I'm going to just learn to do this myself and I'm going to do it better. And I'm going to, you know, never become some, you know, better old guy about it and tell a 16 year old that they can't put that mic on that because that's wrong. You know, just, I never want it to be like that, but it's, and so I was always kind of approaching, I always had my sort of songwriter brain on when I was working with people. And I think the transition to the producer just happened because I'd had, records that people liked and respected and therefore they just kind of trusted me when I said oh well maybe you should drop drop that verse or maybe this isn't the right key or maybe the tempo should be quicker and yeah so people just people just started to 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 trust me more and then my role became more you know more production focused as opposed to as opposed to solely engineering, but no, I always thought I always thought of myself as a producer right from the start, whether or not anyone else in the room did. You know, um, my engineering approach definitely. I was, I mean, I was quite lucky in the sense that while I was studying at college and learning the the, the technical side of things, I was also working, you know, at the weekends and stuff as an assistant for Sam Smith uh, of the Green Door. And that studio is like a totally analog, analog studio, and it was nice working with someone. His approach was much more. Well, I mean, we were kind of like we had similar tastes in music, and I ended up playing drums in his band. And his their approach. We never all the engineers involved at that studio, um, Emily and Stu as well. Like they were, they're all like, they all come at it from more of an artistic angle. So I feel like I got a really well rounded like education I was learning all the technical side of things and then I was also learning you know the artistic and creative side of things too so it really it really balanced it out you know and I mean again I was always I always had that 
because I kind of approached engineering from the perspective of a songwriter that wanted to be able to make his own things sound really good. But and again, I mean, I was really captured by. I mean, I, I just I always have just been a bit of a, a geek. So I really, I really, you know, all the all the the gear and stuff really excited me, and especially all the all the analog gear and the approach that sort of goes with that. And I think that's that's something that's really really stuck with me. That kind of you know embracing the 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 limitations and embracing the like physical side of making music that's something that's really really stuck with me and kind of informed how i approach certain things when you talk about that mindset that you had of considering yourself as a producer from the get-go it sounds like because you had a very clear intent of what you wanted to create and how you wanted your own music to sound a natural progression would be to try and help other artists create and shape their work based on your own experience one of the questions that some students or younger engineers sometimes have is how to make that transition from shadowing and volunteering on projects to starting to charge for their work. And I think it ties in with what you've spoken about already. How important, therefore, do you consider, alongside the technical proficiencies required to operate within a studio environment, are other skills like communication and people management? Oh, it's really, it's, I mean, it's just as important as being able to work the equipment, I think. I've, I mean, I know for a fact that I've gotten work because... I'm probably I'm not necessarily the best engineer in the world technically I, I know for a fact that I'm not but because I've had work because I know I'm nice to work with and I know I'm I'm supportive and encouraging and that I'm you know quite a good mediator between egos in a room you know so it's just yeah it's it's, it's all fine and well being able to you know record something pristinely and and capture something really accurately but it's another thing to, uh, you know, have a band, you know, it's, you know, I'm thinking about when I started off, like, you know, they come into the room, they don't necessarily trust you. They don't, ne- you, you know, you, you know, you just presented with a band. You've got two days to record four tracks. The band are beckoning with each other, you know, so it's, it's just as important to be able to not just capture what they're doing, but to actually get them comfortable and get decent takes out of them and, you know, stop them from getting too drunk at three in the afternoon and you know just kind of keeping things going so you yeah, know it's it's really 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 essential and i think i know if, i just know for a fact that i've got i've gotten work because i'm easy to work with and that people get on with me and that it's i can keep things pleasant i've never understood and i have worked with other producers that are like this i've never understood being overly hostile and aggressive, I, I just it's just not my style at all. And I'm just not that kind of person. I like to think that I'm quite nice and easy to get along with. And that definitely plays a big part in the studio. Because you want, you know, it's easy for me to forget how unusual and intimidating recording can be for bands. But, you know, whether, you know, and they might be trying to, you know, play it off cool and stuff. But, you know, deep down, they're actually quite uncomfortable and things like that so if there's anything i can do to sort of get them to relax and and get a decent take out of them i will and that is all just people skills and you know reading the situation and trying to anticipate what it is they might be feeling or what it is that they would need to to relax like i can literally hear it between if i compare you know if the bat you know we've, we've done a big setup you know say chem studio one the band's all playing together you know the first couple of takes when they're in the room you can hear you can hear them getting more comfortable. Quite often what happens is if, you know, we've spent half the day setting up getting sounds, we've got a couple of hours left of the day, we'll rattle off some takes and 
they'll be, you know, they might be quite good and stuff, but then quite often we'll come back in the next afternoon and they'll start they'll start playing again. And now that they're comfortable, you can there's there's a marked change in the takes. You can hear that they're comfortable, you can hear that they're more confident and yeah. Again again a total total tangent to to your question. But with regards to charging for services, um there I don't recall there being a point where I was like, okay, I'm gonna charge now. It was just I was all, I think there was just an element of like bravado in my sense that I was like, well, you know, I've been at college, I'm qualified, I've got, you know, experience, I have a song songs out that people like. I obviously have a skill, you know, there therefore I should charge for it. And I think it's a difficult one to get right because you don't want to undersell yourself. I mean, people you want to price yourself so that you can get work, but not price yourself so low that people think, oh, well, he's obviously you know, just desperate for anything. So I very sort of, just over the years, like I started off at a fairly, you know, quite, you know, it was pretty cheap at first, really, you know, just to get things under my belt and to get my name out there. And when that started, you know, when records started to do well and certainly when my own band started to do well and I was known for being the, the producer of that stuff, then yeah, sort of incrementally over the years would just put my prices off a little bit. You know, I'm st- and I'm still fairly, you know, cheap. But I feel now, you know, when you get to the point when you feel like, you know, you've invested a lot in equipment and you know that you're doing a good job and you know that you're doing decent, you know, you know you're doing decent work and you know that you're, you have a sound that people desire, then, you know, you feel comfortable charging that. Like, I feel that if I charged less than what I currently charge for my mix, then I'd be, you know, doing myself out of work because I try as far as possible to only really work on stuff that I'm passionate about or respect on some level as a producer and as a mixer. So I'm I'm going to put the work in, you know, there's not really anything that I work on that I half ass. So I wouldn't feel right charging less. You've already acknowledged the invaluable experience you got from the engineers at Green Door Studios in terms of taking an artistic approach to your studio craft. Have there been any other lessons you've picked up from other producers? perhaps in your guise as a musician that you've found you've adopted or utilised? Um, again, like, I think, I mean, I've, I've got to work a bit with the guy that sort of mixed the, the Catholic Action Records. I went and sat in with him. His name's Rich Turvey, and he tends to do a lot of big sort of poppy records like the Coral and Blossoms and all the big guitar pop records, really. But it was just, it was just nice to, it was nice to sit down with someone that's such, like, he's the most professional guy I've ever worked with. It's just and he, and he works really, really, really quickly and really, really decisively. But there's a real, there's a real confidence about that, and it and it tends to, you know, it rubbed off on me and it rubbed off on other people. Like if you approach, he just he just approached his work with a real professionalism and confidence that I hadn't, I hadn't seen before. And I think if you're a producer, it's important for bands to really believe in you and have faith in you. And I think that, you know, bands could probably smell the fear off of a, a sort of an experienced producer and it was just nice to work with someone that was so cool and calm and confident in, in what they did, you know. Um, and I've tried to, you know, don't always have the discipline to go for a swim at seven in the morning before my session at 10, but, you know, nor do I have the discipline to start all my sessions at 10. I think I think it's too early to be playing rock and roll music. I think sometimes bands need to be you know wait till later on in the day before they're actually in in the in the rock and roll headspace yeah so 
I've learned, and unfortunately, I've learned from other producers, you know, what not to do in studios. I've been around other producers that I feel that were just that maybe shouldn't just shouldn't be doing that, you know, as as their job. And somehow, you know, I've never. It's just, and I don't. I just don't want. I don't want to name names, but you know, like, you know, you shouldn't fall out with everyone you work with. It's not worth it. You know, you should just not take on the project in the first place. If it's not something that you're passionate about or that you believe in, you know, like I was saying earlier with management and labels and stuff, it's really, really important that the producer or the engineer and the band are on the same page. You know, I mean, less less so for the if it's a purely engineering role. Obviously, the engineer has to understand what the band want sonically, or what the producer wants sonically. But certainly, the producer has to. The, the band and the producer really have to be on the same page, or there's no point. You know, you know otherwise you're going to end up in a situation where the band want one thing and the producer wants another thing, and instead of communicating about it in a sort of healthy way, it just descends into an argument about direction, and that should just never. That should never happen on like an album session, like mid session. That should these arguments, if they're going to happen, or these discussions, if they're going to happen, should you know happen a long time ago. Which leads me to another point: um, pre-production is really important. Not a lot of bands think about it. Not a lot of producers think about it. Up and coming producers, anyway. But they should, you know, you should. People should just take take the time beforehand to just go and hang out, go and hang out with the band, and you know, have a coffee or a beer and just chat about records that you like and, and why you like them and you know whether it applies to your stuff and then you know get into things like song selection and because ultimately again my production is only going to be as good as the song in the first place so you know and I think pe- some people think that you know a producer is some kind of miracle worker and it's like yeah okay I can help you make your song better or more focused but I can't make your song if it's not a good song into a good song do you know what i mean i think you know it doesn't matter what kind of studio trickery i do if there's no if there's nothing there then it's just going to be studio trickery it's not going to be actual you know substance so pre-production is another way to get around that and a lot of the times with bands you just have to you know be honest with them and say look I think you should go away and write for six months and then we'll chat then. Cause you know, you know, you don't have to be rude about it or anything like that. You know, cause usually if you're meeting up with a band anyway, it's sort of like mutual respect kind of thing. You chat to a band anyway, you know, but yeah, it's just, and, and I think ultimately, even though that can be tough, cause I, I, I'm not a confrontational person. I don't like falling out with people and I don't like being the bearer of bad news, but ultimately people appreciate it in the long run. If they know that you're going to be honest, and sometimes that being honest is saying, look, guys, these four songs aren't strong enough. You know, two of them are great. The other two are filler. Why don't you go and write another 10 songs and we'll pick the, we'll pick the best five and we'll make an absolutely killer EP with it. You know, not enough people do that. And I think it's, and, it, and it's just, it's a confidence thing. You know, you want to build up a band's confidence. You want to say to them, like, these are these are good so you know go away and just churn out some songs and don't don't be too precious about it like yes some of them will work and yes some of them won't work and that's that's all right i think again to to talk about the sort of state of the sort of industry for for younger up-and-coming bands one thing i do notice is that and that i try and discourage any band that i'm working with from doing is like fixating over one or two songs over a really long period of time 
you know, the thing with Spotify and streaming is that, you know, you notice that artists tend to, our younger bands tend to, instead of maybe doing an EP or something longer, they'll tend to like drip feed one or two songs over a really long period of time. And I think that's just the nature of Spotify is forcing bands to do that. And I think it's actually quite unhealthy creatively because bands just fix it. They, you know, they sit on the, they record songs and they sit on them for months and they tinker and, you know, they might release one song. And I think it's just, it's no good for you as a creative to, to do that. It's, you never, you never, you know, if you don't finish a project and put it out, you, you never like clean the slate mentally. You can't move on from it because it's still not out yet and you've not had any feedback from it from, you know, so you don't know what works and, and what doesn't. And you just, you, you just kind of lose direction. So I'm just always, I always encourage bands in pre-production to on it, just write and not be precious about it. And in the end, you usually end up with a much better record. You know, like as I was saying earlier, it's, I, I had a phone call with a, a band that I'm hopefully going to be working with later on in the year. Um, they, they sent me some demos over and I was totally blown away by one of the songs. Really like potentially the most blown away I've ever been by a demo someone sent me. So I was like, we have to work together. Like, please call me tomorrow. Um, so I was talking to them and I was saying that it was a, a band we worked with the, you know, oh yeah, I did say earlier, earlier this week, because we'd done so much pre-production, so much prep, instead of going into the studio and doing four songs, we've done eight. It's when you get in that headspace that the magic happens. It's when you get into that flow, flow state in the studio where the ideas are firing from the band and the ideas are firing from you. Things just happen. And that, from my own experience, that's when the best, that's when I've made my best stuff or that's when I've made my most successful stuff, when I'm not being too precious about it or the band I'm working with isn't being too precious about it. We're just being creative. You can always come back to it and edit, edit later on. But yeah, so, so I... Pre-production is really, really important. It makes all the difference. And especially nowadays if bands don't have as much budget, it's much better to, you know, spend two weeks in a rehearsal room and iron out all the kinks of your album and then go in and absolutely smash it out in the studio because A, it'll be better and B, it'll be much more fun for you as an artist and C, it'll be cheaper. So yeah, yeah, pre-production is is something I've gotten really, really into in the last few years. And that's not necessarily something that I thought too much about when I was sort of starting out, you know. So I mean, there there was one instance I remember. I sort of learned that you know learned that there's a lot of learning things the hard way when you're, you know, working, and that's just that's kind of a fact of life, really. And if if you're not learning, then what's the point? You know, there was there were things that I would do. There was one record in particular. I'd let I was literally sitting with the guy, and I just like we basically finished, but I you know finished my mixes, and I was like, okay, here's the mixes. You know, what do you think? And it was kind of like can you make the drums sound like a drum machine? And I was just like, oh my God, what, 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 why? We've recorded live as a band in the room with like really garagey sounding drums on a tape. Why are you telling me this? Like, why are you telling me this now? Like, why didn't we just use a drum machine, you know, earlier on? It's just, you know, it's really, that's like a really obvious example, but it's like if I'd have spent, even just half an hour talking to the band beforehand, like and getting on the same page, you just you just solve so many problems, you know. And you can, and again, another thing is that I've always believed in, and this is maybe kind of affected the way I work. And I've never really tied myself to one studio. 
for the most part. And I, and I think that and this is this is much more as a producer than an engineer. This is the, my producer brain talking that I don't think every space suits every band. I think that you again through pre-production you find these things out and you can I can then find out what the band wants and I can then go away and look at or have a think about different spaces that I work in and different equipment that I use and, and really tailor it to each project ultimately with the goal of like firing the band's imagination and having fun in a good session again when you have fun like that that's when that's when the magic happens kind of thing yeah so those are just yeah those are just a few I and mean, i could go on all day about this but those are just a few things i think that really helpies uh you know that i've picked up from other producers or you know picked up from just years of of, of doing it you know yep if we think of what lies at the centre of what it means to be an engineer, whether in live sound or in the studio, so much of it involves maximising your time when you're on, so to speak, by doing as much in terms of preparation as possible. And the pre-production aspect is something that I think engineers or producers starting out might not fully appreciate, the benefits and investment it can mean to our project. For your own approach to pre-production, you've outlined how you try to lay foundations, get to know the band and artists that you're working with, and it might be different in each instance, but are there certain things that you like to do? Things like maybe getting a Spotify playlist together that you think could be useful to draw inspiration from. Getting to know them in person, I imagine, is also important. Maybe paying a visit to their rehearsal space to hang out. Is it these type of things? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah, it is absolutely all these things. I'm big on, you know, reference playlists. And I like to kind of, for myself, it's like, I feel like I can do a better job if I have, you know, as a producer, you want to have like a sort of sonic vision for the project, you know, like how you see it being fleshed out and how you see it coming together and just how you see it as an, as, you know, putting together a kind of aesthetic in my head and kind of testing that out with a band in the lead up to the session and seeing if, if that's what they'd like to do. And then if that is what they'd like to do, then I absolutely run with it, you know, more and more when I'm working with bands and it's just an experience thing is you learn that some bands don't either don't really need or can't really be produced, you know, and, and it's in those situations that, and you just, again, like, you know, there's kind of a continuum of one end of the scale, like you're a full producer and you're right in there and you're literally writing melodies and all that on the track. And then there's the other side of the scale where you're maybe hitting record and play on the tape machine and telling them when it was a good take. Both are still, it's both still producing, you know, it just, but it's really, again, important during that pre-production stage. Once, of course, you've decided that you want to work with a band and that they want to work with you, that you're figuring out what it is they actually need from you and what it is you can do to kind of help them get where they want to go with it. That's how I see it. I mean, a lot of people see it differently, but I mean, again, recently, in the last year or two, I've really yeah put a big emphasis on pre-production, especially songwriting, because I mean, ultimately, at the end of the day, and it's a lesson that I didn't really learn. It, it's not really hit home for me until the last few years. You know the importance of that, just song selection, and because again, like one of the the beautiful thing about production in general is that I know that if I'm fortunate enough or physically able thinking of my hearing to do this when I'm you know in my like 50s or 60s I know that I'll still be learning stuff I know that I'll, I'll you know like 
it's something that you're never going to master. It's you get good at it, you get more experienced at it, but there, there's always going to be something else to uh, to learn from it. And that song lesson I've really picked up on in the last sort of two or three years, really just hammering it home to bands like just it doesn't matter like what mics I use or what recording techniques or you know things I do like if you don't have a good song it's not it doesn't matter it's just going to be a really well recorded bad song you know (laughs) which so if you know that might be tough for an artist to hear but if they you know go away and work on it come back in six months time with you know a solid repertoire of tracks it's going to do you know it's going to stand them in much better stead than going into the studio now and recording some kind of half-baked songs that no one really cares about when they put them out as opposed to you know taking some time and really developing their sound and their and I think that's something that me as a as a producer would say that I maybe that's sort of one of my strong points is that you know like but younger bands that I've worked with you know like say like Walt Disco or something like that you know and they are a band that are really sort of image and aesthetic focused and you know that they're you know maybe people see them as divisive it's because of that but I mean I like them and we work together a lot before they put anything out just in my home studio and a lot of those sessions weren't really necessarily about let's record this song right now let's get it done really quickly it was a lot of like experimentation and, and finding out what it is you know who the band are like what is it that makes Walt Disco Walt Disco and again that's something this I mean usually that's something that I just ask bands and it's always a really horrible it's such a difficult question to answer but it's important to think about you know like what is it that makes you you because again like as a producer I don't really have much interest in in like the kind of like Motown formula of like everything has a similar kind of sound and you know, and I have a lot of respect for engineers and producers that do that, but that's not really my thing. Like, I want to work with like a wide range of artists that have different visions, and I want you know to help them realize that vision. It doesn't matter what kind of genre or whatever. I mean, I know obviously I tend to the bands I tend to work with do tend to be sort of indie or folk or or rock, but you know, I'd love to <laughs> I'd love to work on like a heavy metal album at some point or you know some kind of hip-hop thing um yeah just I'm, I'm going off on a total tangent here i've totally forgot what we were talking about no it's all good and although you're highlighting a bit of recognition with indian folk there's still a wealth of genre and stylistic difference in the full range of work that you've produced and created yourself and it kind of brings me on to my next question the second catholic action album seemed to be a body of work that embraced the studio wholeheartedly almost like an additional member or instrument even. Do you think that this was the inevitable culmination of your years producing and honing your studio craft alongside your songwriting ability? Oh yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, I think really early on when I was in college, I got the the library had a copy of that Brian Eno book, A Year with Swollen Appendices, and it just, and at the same time I was getting really into his music and obviously his whole approach just really really sort of blew me away and inspired me and you know he was one of the pioneers of you know really considering the studio as another instrument so yeah I mean I've always that second Catholic Action album I was really just I really wanted to make something that felt really true to me and I really wanted to 
there was a definite departure from the sort of more, you know, skinny jeans indie boy thing on the first album. And then also, yeah, I mean, of course, you know, you're working as an engineer in the studio. I like it. I know I have all these tr- new tricks and stuff that I want to try out. And again, I mean, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I think you can listen to the record and you can hear the songs that are band songs and you can hear the songs that are, have started through studio experimentation. But again, one of the, the things I always sort of pride myself on with that band was the, that there was no set way of doing things. So, you know, like when the, when the well of, you know, writing as a band ran dry, then we would, you know, songs would emerge from being written in the studio and, and vice versa. So yeah, that, that second album absolutely was, it was just me not limiting myself in the studio basically now i'm now i'm on the opposite end of that scale of the record that i'm working on <laughs> i'm doing on like 16 track tape and i'm trying to keep everything really raw and you know get back to what made me excited about songwriting in the first place when i was like 18 just keeping things really raw and simple so but again it's just it's nice to be able to do that you know yeah i was just going to comment that from a music listener's point of view I think it's nice and refreshing when you have an album that you're not quite sure what's going to happen from song to song or how each track will sound in comparison to the previous. I also accept that there is cause at times for that comfort and familiarity. It's great that from the Catholic Action album to the record you're working on at the moment, you've been able to experience these different approaches. So yeah, you're now producing work in which you're returning to the traditional core elements of what got you interested in songwriting and recording in the first place. Is that right? Oh no, absolutely, and just um, I liked when you said that I quite like you know uh, you know not knowing what's coming next in a record, but equally there are times when you really like I'm going to stick this record on because it's this vibe and that's what I want to experience for forty minutes. Like I'd really like to make a record like that because I feel like I haven't. I think Catholic Action and up to now it's like so cheesy, right? But it is kind of a it's sort of a journey to be as a songwriter and a producer and this is just where I'm at with it now. Like I've made the kind of eclectic, I made the sort of straight up indie rock thing, made the kind of eclectic thing, but now I really want to make a record that's a vibe and that is much more conceptually like and sonically focused. Because I think also the Catholic Action album, the most recent one is a result of my terrible attention span <laughs> you know like i did there really wasn't a limit there really was just like oh this is exciting let's just do this oh and then that you know that would end up a song and that's amazing and that's brilliant but i'd like to just now as a as a producer and a songwriter okay this this is what i'm going to do i'm going to be you know a bit bit more not strict but maybe lay out some like ground rules you know so i've I've done that, you know, with the recording, like all the drum, every, you know, all the songs were originally based off of like an acoustic guitar track and an, an old Hammond drum machine track for all, the whole record without exceptions. And then put all of that on a tape machine, played all the, you know, all the drums with the same drum kit, the same mic set up, and then the same with the bass, all the same bass sound and every, drum and bass every track. So it's drum bass acoustic and an old drum machine thing is everything you know everything's going to be based off of that and again the sort like when i'm writing i still feel like i don't have the attention span to like write 10 songs of this exactly the same style so over lockdown 
was saying earlier, I mean, I really just let myself go and, and write. I just made myself write a ton of stuff. Like, I just like, okay, write, write and demo two songs a week. Like, it doesn't matter if it's crap, just do it. You know, because I mean, that's what I'm telling bands to do. So I should at least, it's just should at least, you know, practice what I preach. So, um, you know, that's what I did. And then when I had a big enough pile, I've whittled that down to like 17 or so songs. And then the plan is finish the 17 recordings and then whittle that down to nine or 10 or whatever's closest to 40 minutes. That's the plan. Um, so that that's that's me being more strict with myself, but that's like about as strict as I can be, I think. And <laughs> we'll just... We'll just see if that works out, you know. Sounds exciting and look forward to hearing that for sure and how that process transpires for you. In terms of location, you work under normal conditions between Glasgow and London, mm. is that right? Yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'll do stuff in Liverpool as well, but yeah, for the most part, Glasgow and London, yeah. Both are synonymous with a very rich musical heritage and I wondered how you find that process of operating between the two. And if there are any inherent differences, either in approach or the type of bands and artists that you work with from each city. Yeah, there's a lot more ego going on in London, that's for sure. Um, there's a lot more like misguided ego going on in London. There's a lot of people that are really bad but don't know it. <laughs> Sorry, that's terrible. That's terrible. It's just some bands that I've encountered that are like that. You're like, why aren't... Or even just, you know, being in the studio next door to someone else and listening to some big drama going on and just being like what on earth is good do you know what i mean so but i think that just comes from you know depending on you know if you like form a sort of semi-cool band in london and you look cool and you start playing gigs in like the windmill or one of these really cool venues you're going to get like a and r people from rough trade at like your second gig you know it's just that's just the nature of it down there there's there's much more of an industry presence there so bands are so much more conscious of that uh whereas i think in glasgow there's a couple of things I think well firstly there's not as much industry so I think people get more time to like gestate into different things you know whereas London there tends to be like a sort of more of a scene or similar-ish types of bands tend to emerge and people coalesce around that because they get snapped up really quickly by record labels when they're like 19 and they've played like five gigs whereas in Glasgow there's much more time to prepare but equally, there's also, there's like, there's definitely a slight aversion to ambition in the like Glasgow character, I think. You don't want a scene to be trying too hard. There's definitely less of that now. There's lots of like young, really, really ambitious and sort of industry savvy young bands about right now, especially with social media. And, you know, I, I don't really, I mean, I, personally, that side of things doesn't really interest me all that much, but it does exist I definitely yeah there's definitely in glasgow there's a oh i couldn't possibly you know do you know you know what i mean it's just there's a there's definitely there's a slight aversion to ambition i think in scotland in general and i don't know if that just comes from being like i don't know subjugated by the british empire for so long or i don't you know i don't know what it is but there's like a people here should maybe you know em, em, embrace that a bit more i don't know i don't know it's just there are there are there are definite big differences. I call, one thing I really like doing is I like taking bands from up here down there and recording just so that they can experience somewhere totally different and it can be quite an inspiring environment because it's so busy and there's a constant stream of like really talented people. Yeah, you, you like quickly learn that you're not the best engineer. You kind of have to level up your skills quite quickly as well because I mean, you know, it's like going to the big city. You kind of learn that 
you know the best of the best are there and if you want to compete you have to you know get your shit together quite quickly um but like i said i like taking bands down there just to kind of get them out of glasgow and to like focus them because they can't you know i mean in glasgow if you're on a session you're like thinking oh well normally you'd be thinking oh who am i going to meet at the pub later like oh yeah we're going to go for dinner with such and such later on whereas when you're there it's like we're only here to do this you know maybe at some point in the week i'll meet my pals for dinner but for the vast majority of the time we're like focused on recording and that's it and i think that can foster a really creative productive atmosphere you know and especially being somewhere quite because london can be quite inspiring it's so busy and there's a bustle to it that can kind of energize you i think or give you a kick up the arse whichever one you need most you know is it fair to say that one of the most significant attractions you can have for an artist or act that you want to produce or work with is if you can recognise and buy into an element of the creative vision or intent that they have, that you have a belief that you can constructively contribute to their project? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. That was one of the, the cool things I really liked about working with Annie for the slow weather stuff and for, for her stuff. Like, I mean, I initially worked with her as a producer for one of our old EPs like a few years ago and we just something just clicked we just got on really well and it's actually the older I've got the more you you appreciate like a musical connection with someone because you realize that like a genuine healthy musical connection with someone is actually well I find to be quite rare you know it's there's not I could maybe count on one hand the amount of people that I know that I could sit in a room with and rattle off a song and it wouldn't be difficult and it wouldn't feel uncomfortable. You know, so Annie was someone that it just, it just, you just meet people and you're just on the same wavelength as them really. And you respect what they have to say and you, you admire what they do and, or, or the, the compliment, you know, that was the thing with Annie as well. It was like, I feel that her style of songwriting, we just sort of balanced each other out. Like she, was much more narrative focused where I would, I would much, you know, I would tend to lean towards a sort of turn of phrase that sounded cool, but didn't necessarily expand on what the song meant. So, so Annie would kind of, I would be throwing out like one liners. She would make sense of them in a way and vice versa. Like I would, she would have a narrative idea that would maybe need some more, snappy one-liners or like structural focus to it and that was you know what i would bring to the table kind of thing and obviously like the sonic aspect of it you know too um so yeah like it's yeah it's just i'm just it's important that as i've become more experienced in it to to kind of try and try a bit harder to to seek these people out and again that's <clears throat> where things like pre-production really come into play just hanging out with people and having these chats you 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 figure out what who's going to work and who's not going to work uh in terms of collaborating either as a producer or as a songwriter yeah i mean you know already i'm a huge fan of that slow weather record i really think it's a fantastic bit of work both in terms of the songwriting that you've alluded to as well as the sonic nature that you've achieved in the production there's a lovely naturalness to it in terms of the relationship between the two of you as performers, vocally, you both complement each other so well. I think it's a really great combination. Yeah. Well, it's cool how it worked out. I mean, we didn't really think about it all that much. It was almost just like, we got on really well together. Do you want to write some songs? Yeah, okay. And then we met up 
on five occasions and just made ourselves sit down and write a song each time. And then we went to the pub or we went to the pub first and then we wrote a song. And then we had a collection of five. We're like, should we go and record them? And then we just went down to London for like 10 days, just rattled them out. Again, it was just that thing. It was like, okay, let's both, uh, Annie's from Edinburgh. So let's just both get out of our respective cities, go and just focus for a while and, and, and see what happens. We had a kind of loose idea of, the kind of sonic that would like to do but again there was that element like the catholic action record of let the studio be its own you know instrument there were things that you know that would happen that would that did totally change the direction of songs i mean it, it was as simple as there were some songs that maybe i think the first track on the ep it's called want to know and there was just something not right about it and then sort of as a for a laugh I just, but I'm really, I'm really fond of having a laugh in the studio, by the way, because almost all my good ideas come from when I'm being silly. So, I, you know, I was just for a laugh. I was like, oh, this will be funny. I'll stick the entire mix through a synth filter, like a low pass. And we're like, oh my God, that this is it. That's it. It works. All like stick all the instruments through a low pass filter. There you go. Leave the drum machine as it is. Leave the low end, leave the high end of the vocals alone. There you go. That's it. And then slowly introduce different aspects of the the arrangement to it you know but yeah um you want to you want to work with someone that you can do that with that you can feel you know comfortable with and again as a producer you want people to feel like they can make mistakes and you want people to feel like they can be silly and do things that on paper sound ridiculous because honestly i think that's where that's when when you start doing things like that to your tracks and not being precious and not and you know having the balls to just do that that's when your tracks really come to life you know when you can take a step away and go do you know what fuck it we're doing this let's try this and it might not work and often it doesn't work but when it does work it really pays off because you've you've kind of allowed yourself to to take a leap but you need to be around the right people and be in the right situation to to feel like you can can take those leaps, you know. Just on that slow weather EP, I wanted to ask about the final track, Clean Living, and how it closes with that extended playout. It kind of reminded me of Lazy Line Painter Jane or Dry the Rain, you know, something like that. Mm-hmm. I felt it gave it a grandness, a boldness, and wondered at what point in the process that you decided to go for that approach, or did it just come naturally? Yeah, it just came naturally. I think it was one of the days that we'd been to the pub before we started writing, and then we were just kind of jamming out on it for ages, and we are like... Because I think the, the the Slow Weather EP was quite interesting because the order of the songs is the on the EP is the order that we wrote the songs in. So to us, we feel that... Yeah, because we thought, again, talking about... Because like, me and Annie spoke about that as well, like what we were saying earlier about artist development and being able to hear the like trajectory of an artist over the course of albums and how we both kind of miss that, you know, because back in the day, a band would maybe do five albums, whereas now they'd maybe get a chance to do one or maybe two if they're lucky on a label before they get dropped unless they're really successful. You know, and actually, well, it just, I think Annie sequenced it. She was like, this should be the order. And then afterwards we were like, oh, that's the order that we wrote the songs in. So that's kind of cool that it has this extra little layer of, you know, meaning. So so by the end of Clean Living, like we kind of felt that that's the sound of slow weather going forward. Like we've now, we know who we are now. 
Because I feel like on the EP you can kind of hear us like testing out a couple of different things, and then I feel like by clean living it sort of coalesces, and that the the lengthy thing was just I mean that just happened, and we were just like no, nah, let's just not change that. That's actually really cool, and that's just what again. This is another thing I always say to artists: it's like you should confidently be yourself, even if you think it's ridiculous, because if you're true to yourself, it shows. People, you know, even you know, to any any music listener, they, they they might not be able to necessarily tell you, but they know when something sounds forced or when something sounds a bit phony, and they know when something sounds real, and when someone is being true to themselves, and and you know, because it what it didn't come about from self indulgence, it just came about. In fact, no, I think it literally did come about from self indulgence. I mean, what I was about to say. It's just pure self-indulgence. You know, we just jammed on it for 10 minutes and thought it sounded cool and decided to keep it in there. But we also felt that it it really hammered home because Annie just repeats the lyrics over and over again. And, and it, it just felt like it kind of hammered home because we're kind of similar as people. You know, we, we sort of felt, you know, it just, it, just, it just made sense. But, oh God, I've been off on so many different tangents. I'm a bit lost now. Well... <laughs> What was I saying? No, I think you're right. There's a real authenticity that's ever present throughout the entirety of the record that has an appeal because it very much isn't forced. I think it's a great culmination and way to close the track, and indeed the EP, because it's powerful and builds the song to such a nice place. You don't get to hear it too often these days, where artists have the strength and self-belief in their songwriting and production to try that straightforward but bold approach of an extended, subtly built ending. But the other interesting aspect for me trying to buy the thing was how it led me to explore the Last Night from Glasgow label. For listeners maybe unfamiliar, they've adopted a Patreon-esque business model and they're a label that release a combination of older, more established Scottish acts as well as newer, younger talent. What did you make of that framework and method of operating? Were you aware of them prior to Slow Weather or was that your first dealings with them? Well... Annie, Annie's had dealings with them because they put out all of her solo stuff and she played in a band called Mount Doubt and I think they put out all of their stuff so she introduced me to them and I, yeah I was really impressed that like we went over and I mean this was before Covid and all that when we first sort of finished like when we finished the Slow Weather record we went over and met them and had a chat with them and it's just really cool it's just a sort of not-for-profit label the way they you know my interaction with them was they pressed the record up for us and they'd done some press and promo and got some decent radio play and, and they've got, there's like a core membership. So anything that they put out, there's going to be so many hundreds of people that just get a copy because they're part of the like club. And I think the subscription, people subscribing to that club sort of pays for them to pay for pressing records. And then I think they just run it not for, profit other than that but no it's great it was so well organized and uh ian who runs it was just really friendly and upfront about things and it's it's quite refreshing i think they've also recently just announced that they're doing some kind of funding thing so i've recommended quite a few artists that there's a few artists that you know i've been kind of chasing as a producer being like i really want to work with you i think you're great and they're like i do as well but i have literally zero money so i can, you know i mean we can't pay for any studio time so i mean i'm p- pushing artists like that towards it you know, hopefully, uh, and you know, they're going to help LNFG are going to help try and provide some, you know, cash for like studio time and 
mixing and mastering and stuff. So I mean, it's it's great. It's it's great that it's growing. It was so well organized. It was so. I mean, it was really impressive. The guy's got like a whole room of his flat. Like there's like a dedicated room of his flat where it's just stacks and stacks of records and you know sending them out everywhere. So yeah, it's, my experience with them has been really really good with the slow weather stuff. I'd recommend. And I know that they, I know they definitely listen to. I know Annie says that anyway, that they make a point of trying to listen to literally everything they get sent. So I'm always kind of recommending it to to artists that, you know, I'm working with that maybe don't have a label that I think are quite interesting to, you know, send their stuff to them. Because, uh, yeah, they, they just seem to be going from strength to strength. And again, that's what I, re- I really hope that COVID allows or forces probably, is the right word to use, more people to do things like this. Because one thing is that, that it's made really evident is that music is never going to go away. There's always going to be people at the grassroots level making music. It's just always going to happen. So there is always going to be there is always going to be a need for and independent labels and and independent venues and stuff to to be there. So I just hope that there's a lot more LNFG type things down the line because I think it's fantastic and. It's just a really, it's just a really positive thing to be part of, really. You know, and it's it's mad. Like the the slow weather stuff. I think we've probably like all the tracks are on less than like two thousand plays on Spotify, but we've actually, you know, LNFG have sent Annie and I money. We've actually made money off of that record, and it's mental. And I know they've probably only pressed up about five hundred records, but just through their sort of their sort of established network of like subscribers. And from people buying the record, like we've actually managed to make money off of it, and it's it's amazing, you know. It's really it's really positive, and they've got they got some really decent radio play from it as well. I mean, obviously, it definitely helps, you know, having all oh, such and such from Catholic action, blah blah blah. You know, that definitely helps. But it's it was it's really you know I'm really I can't like sing their praises enough to be honest. I heard a really enjoyable interview you gave for the brilliant Vintage Society podcast. And there were a couple of points of discussion that you covered I wanted to touch on, if that was okay. There was a recurring theme of purity that the conversation kept returning to, which I thought was really interesting and refreshing to hear. And this was in reference, I think anyway, and amongst other things, to your core beliefs and principles as an artist, which you've already alluded to. Your songwriting, even the decision to pick a vibey demo take over a studio-produced second attempt that maybe didn't quite capture the same magic of the original and how you decide to engage with social media. Regarding the latter, how hard has it been to operate within the music industry in 2021 while keeping social media socially distant? Uh, um, I don't know. <laughs> I just, I'm probably just sort of stubborn and a bit of a Luddite. To me, I, I like mystery. I don't like knowing too much about artists initially i was like that record that i was talking about earlier the floating points and pharaoh sanders record that just came out it's amazing and it annoyed me like i read the wikipedia page when i was listening to it and and it annoyed me i I was angry at myself for that because it like demystified it in a way i think i'm sort of old enough to have like you know i didn't have the internet till i was like you know a teenager i didn't you know, have a mobile phone until I was nearly finished high school. And like, I, you know, I remember being really excited to 
by the NME every week and to 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 get records and to just like pour over the the liner notes and construct a sort of fantasy about an artist in my head and they seemed kind of you know I mean in, in some bands still do that like I mean obviously I bang on to anyone that'll listen about how good or how much I like like Madley Valentine and they're kind of the perfect example of their mystery is like became this sort of legendary thing that is just as attractive to a lot of people as the music itself and it and it's sort of it i feel like the mystery about their band adds to the enjoyment of the record like who the hell are these people that have made this like beautiful thing i don't like i don't really want to know what kevin shields has had for dinner or do you know what i mean i, I like i'm sure if loveless came out today and they had a social media account and they're like posting selfies and you know, just posting all these stupid videos about, you know, just whatever they're doing or like making memes and stuff. I, I don't know. I feel like it would really detract from the experience of the record or the same with like Sonic Youth and stuff. I mean, actually, I do follow Thurston Moore and Kim Gordon and Lee Ronaldo on Instagram. And fair enough, it's quite interesting, you know, it's just because I'm interested in them as people. But, you know, they've, they've, they've put all the records out of Sonic Youth now. So it sort of doesn't matter. I just, I just feel that like, demystifies artists and I think mystery was like a powerful tool uh, and again I, I say this to a lot of bands that I work with like listeners buy into the image of a band or the like brand of a band just as much as they do and if if not even more with social media than they do the music like you know you can't you know like say The Clash there's so much like context and like connotations to being a fan of their music outside of the like songs themselves you know there's a whole political thing there's the whole punk image there's the whole like punk lifestyle and like joe strummer's attitude to, to just life in general and it's the same way like even like smaller bands you know that i've produced like say walt disco for instance like a lot of their fans are definitely into the or like medicine cabinet they've not even got music out you know, I've, I've worked and recorded some stuff with them and they're crazy on social media. And it's like people buy into that image and the, the things that they portray that lifestyle just as much as they do the music. So, and I think again, for a lot of bands, there's some bands that do the social media thing really well. And there's some, and but most people don't. I think most people, all they do is, all they serve to do is like demystify themselves put a lot of crappy content out that just puts people off and it's almost better to add i mean me and annie had this debate a, a lot because i probably drove her mad about it because i was just like we just shouldn't have any kind of social media and we don't like we don't have a facebook page and the compromise annie just was like okay can we please just make an instagram so that i can repost when people are listening to it and i was like okay fine but my thing is i'd rather just not have a social media account than have a crap one and i don't have the patience or the interest in putting enough time into making things that look good enough to to do it you know like i like i like you know like with the catholic action stuff i'd rather like the the album cover and the liner notes and stuff be really really interesting and have loads of detail and stuff and then put loads of like crappy pictures of myself on an instagram page just for the like the likes you know, and I, and I feel like a lot of young bands are pressured, you know, they're just pressured into that because they think that no one's going to like them if they don't. And 
for to a large extent that's kind of true and and that's another reason why I hope the whole DIY thing kicks off and I hope that there's a bit of a rejection of that and people start to embrace the human side of music again and you know being together and and enjoying records and not you know just living on your phone I mean obviously COVID's had a big big impact on that but no to to answer your question I've just not engaged with it like almost definitely to my detriment but just I just don't feel comfortable doing it I feel and a lot of the time when I was sort of made to do it with Catholic Action on the first album it just made me very uncomfortable it made me very anxious and unhappy and I just said to my manager like look I'm like with the second I just don't want to do this and and they basically said to the label, just like back off, they're not going to do it, you know, which I really appreciated because to me it's it's not like what I signed up to do. And the further away I get from the pure act of writing music or being in the studio, working on my own music or working with another band or playing live, the further away I get from that, the, the less I enjoy it. And life is short. I don't want to like, I don't want to become really bitter and I think engaging with the music industry or that aspect of it too much as an artist can be really soul destroying there are people that i know that love it like the people that you know there's guys that you know managers that i've worked with that are like they love that side of things and they really get off on business deals and making things happen and that's brilliant and that's good for them but that's and that's why they exist you know and i think the thing with social media is that artists are kind of expected to do everything and it's like you can't do everything well, you know. And I kind of learned that as a producer as well, that you can't always, you know, sometimes it actually is better to get like, you know, like an outside mixer or whatever for a project you're doing. The project's actually going to end up better because of it. And sometimes it's better to, you know, just work as a producer on this project and, and have a separate engineer. You know, it's just you can't do everything well yourself, I don't think. Teamwork makes the dream work, as they say. <laughs> yeah. Another interesting topic from that podcast was in relation to limitations regarding analogue recording systems and the positivity of committing and limiting your options. I remember a real struggle myself, having been brought up as a teenager using four-track or eight-track cassette systems and how the digital transition became like a choose-your-own-adventure story, but with almost far too many options. I definitely think it had an initial negative effect on an ability to commit to sign off on projects. This can sometimes be an unfamiliar concept for younger engineers to maybe appreciate if they've only ever known endless track creation or processing option in DAWs like Pro Tools. Are you able to outline the significance that your own philosophy and approach has on the way that you work in the studio and on the creation of music, particularly with regards to your fondness for analogue equipment? Yeah, well, there's two really sort of crass ways that I like to put it to bands that don't really understand it is one, like, do you ever find, like, how often do you find yourselves opening up Netflix or Amazon Prime and spending about half an hour getting really angry because you can't decide what to watch because there's just too many things and then you end up watching something that's just kind of crappy and you don't like it. And the other thing I like to say is, like, if I'm talking, putting a mix through analog tape as I'm like, it's kind of like an Instagram filter for your music in like the crudest the crudest way possible but I mean that's not really what it's about the, 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 the real benefit I think to use an analog or even just trying to limit your track count a bit on Pro Tools or even just committing to stuff 
on Pro Tools because it can, you know, it can be done. It's just, just, you know, it forces you to get your shit together. Like it forces you to finesse your arrangements and to make decisions that you otherwise can just kind of keep kicking into the grass forever. And then you sort of leave it up to the mix engineer to like make sense of this totally bloated Pro Tools session that doesn't really have any direction to it and I don't know there's, a, there's just a lot to be said about direction and people you know bands talk to you about their influences and you know maybe other engineers are, that are struggling or whatever talk to you about their influences and the kind of things that you know they want to make and then I just say well you know if your influences are the Clash and the Ramones and you want to sound like the Clash and the Ramones you should probably just kind of work the way they did because it's not just about the technology, it's about the approach that that technology forces you to take. You know, like I've done an EP, a record, a single that came out just the other week uh, by a band called Cheap Teeth, and people are going nuts about the production on it because they're like, oh, you know, it sounds like the Clash of the Ramones and it's fully analog to tape. And like, oh, you know, people are messaging me and going, oh, you know, how did you do that? And I was like, I just set up a band live in a room who are a really good band with really good songs and they're really rehearsed and I put up mics in good positions. I got them to tune their guitars and we done like two or three takes. That was it. Like there's no secret to that. And they're like, it sounds like the classroom ones. It's like that's because we recorded it to tape and because they can play really well. It's like there's no there's no secret to that. You know, and and you can't really manipulate a Pro Tools session. I mean well you can. You can just record 16 or 24 tracks in it Pro Tools and leave it at that and you know don't use Beat Detective and don't use a click track and uh, but you have to you have to be disciplined to do that uh, but again though the, the important thing like I don't I'm not I don't exclusively work like that I mean the thing I'm mixing right now I have literally just quantized all the drums for it and I'm going to sample replace or the kick and the snare drum because I think that that's actually what this project needs and it sounds great because of it but you know, for me to do that to a band like Cheap Teeth would just be, it would be like, I don't know, it'd be kind of, it would be kind of pointless, you know? So it's just, I think the advice to young engineers is that context is everything, like absolutely everything. And you have to, you have to think about that, you know, like, why are you putting that plugin on there? Like, do you really need to have eight plugins on that to make it sound good? Couldn't you just why don't you just spend an extra half hour tuning the drums um, and moving your mics about and treating the room a little bit to get the sound that you want. It's so it's like, I'd ma- I've made it into kind of a like macho thing in the studio where it's a wee flex of mine to like, to bring up a drum sound for a band and to not have any plugins on it and for them to really like it. That, that's my kind of aim to like, be like, right, I'm going to do, I'm going to like just spend an extra half an hour because it's, it's not much effort. Like it's not, it's not at all in it. As an engineer, it just makes your life a hell of a lot easier if you just bring stuff up and it sounds good because you've spent a wee bit of time tuning a drum kit and moving your mics about. Like, you know, so, and again, that's just part of the analog domain because I've just, I've never subscribed to the whole fix it in the mix thing. I think Pro Tools should be, it's like, it's an amazing tool. It's like, it, but it's a tool, you know, and you should, you should see it as something something that allows you to be endlessly creative with something that already sounds good. It shouldn't be a crutch that you polish turds with. Do you know what I mean? And if you use it, if you use Pro Tools like that, then it's amazing. 
I think, and I'm, I'm totally not against quantizing drums and sample replacement and even, you know, melodyne and stuff if, if, if it needs it. But I'd rather only do that if I feel like it needs it. I think the danger of Pro Tools is that you then fall into the habit of doing all of these things without asking whether or not it needs it in the first place. It's also really, really nice to to make an entire record and not look at a screen once because you can only use your ears, you know, which I think bands tend to enjoy as well. It does make you think about what bands, engineers and producers looked at when in studio control rooms prior to Pro Tools, which inevitably provides such a visual focus of attention. Well, it's even just, you know, you're working with bands and, you know, there's you're like maybe playing something back and someone's sitting over your shoulder and is pointing at the screen going, that's out of time. And then you go, what? And then you turn the screen off and you play it back and you go, is it out of time? And they're like, oh, I don't know. And it's like, well, just shut up. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, just use your ears. Like, I don't know. I and mean, again, it's just, if it doesn't sound good for you right there and then, it's never going to sound good. You know, and it, it, looking at it, it's not going to make it sound good. It's just when you're not using your eyes, your your ears get stronger and get more focused as well. So I think it's an important skill to to have as a as an engineer or a producer to be able to actually just listen to stuff because you're just distracted it's like you're you're not really mindful of what's going on if you're like looking at the meters on a gate when you're playing your track back and you're looking at your master bus and you're going oh that's clipping and it's like well but it sounds fine do you know what i mean it's like if it's not you know just context is everything though i mean again like pro tools is amazing and what you can do with it's brilliant and having done records on tape and in Pro Tools, there are times when you wish that you could just really quickly edit something and but instead it takes ages and you know if you like screw up a drop in on a tape machine it's you, you can't just hit undo you need to like really apologize to the artist who's doing the vocals that you've just like scrubbed you know half of that really good vocal tape because you were being an idiot and you know Another thing is that for those who maybe haven't had the chance to experience utilising an analogue recording system, mixes were often performed while other members of the band may be helping you out, with everyone having different roles. What was fascinating about that was that you ended up with a different result each time, sometimes with one or two happy accidents that ended up working for the track, sometimes not, and you'd have to do it again, but there was something really nice and organic about that tangible workflow. Yeah, it's just human, isn't it? It's just like human and it's exciting. And I think having the space for ha- like uh, leaving wiggle room for happy accidents to occur is like essential. It's just much more enjoyable than like if you look around in a session and like half the band are just kind of. I mean, the other thing I don't like is I, I don't like bands on their phones in the control room. Like, I'm just like, just if you're going to use your phone, just get out. <laughs> you know, like I like literally put up a sign in the studio that just the control room is a no phone zone if you're not here to like listen and contribute then like go just go for a walk and chat to your pals that i mean that's fine but like just i don't know it's just a bit of a buzzkill if you turn around and everyone's like uh, looking at their phone you're just you know it's like you this is your record like aren't you aren't you excited about this like don't you care you know yeah well thank you so much for your time I just wanted to close with hopefully a fairly easy one. I'm always keen to find out from people if they can identify any significant moments, events or periods in their lives 
that they can point to as having had a direct influence on their ambition to create or work with sound. I've spoken before about how my own early interests revolved around the process, fascination with equipment, or watching the ritual of selecting and putting on a vinyl album. Can you think back to any similar experiences that first attracted you to music and production? Oh, no, absolutely. Like, um, my parents, I mean, neither of them play uh, music. They're not, I mean, I think they played instruments when they were, like, younger in school for a few years or whatever, but nothing they always wanted to, but never really had the opportunity to do it. Um, But they were, you know, they always had, you know, they were huge music fans and had good, big record collections. And I remember... Just from I remember just from a really young age, like being like four or five, like I would just put records on and just sit in front of the hi fi and listen to them. That was just my sort of favorite thing to do. And I remember, I don't know, I remember at a sort of young age, like just thinking about how albums were constructed and like, oh, you know, you'd have so many songs like this and then you'd have an acoustic song and that was kind of cool. And what, why would they decide to do that? And then I always used to make like pretend radio shows. So I would like copy. Like I would just make mixtapes on a wee cassette player, basically, and you know, talk in between them and pretend I was a radio DJ kind of thing. So yeah, and I've always just things like that, and just I remember sort of pestering my dad about like whenever a song would because he was just they were just big music fans and they just always played music. So you know, be in the car and I would just ask them what everything meant. Like I remember I know why they didn't tell me, but I remember being like you know it was like Roxanne by the Police. I was like, what is this about? And, you know, them being kind of cagey about what it's actually about. But that's what I was like. And my dad was a huge sort of punk fan and Clash fan. So I was always, you know, asking him about the stories behind, you know, the songs and what what they were about. But then on the other side, my mum was a huge sort of soul and disco and country fan. So I got a kind of really a big sort of mixed bag of or a really sort of broad spectrum of music that I was exposed to at a really young age and I just yeah I was just always I could just you know obviously just rubbed off on me that music was a really special important thing to my family and and obviously it was for me for a young age it was just a really enjoyable cool you know transformative thing to get lost in kind of thing and then just became as a teenager it just became such a huge part of my like identity kind of thing and and then that, that was it kind of thing <clears throat> Chris, once again, thanks for coming on and for being so generous with your time and sharing your experience. It's been so good to get an insight into your work. No problem. Thanks for having me.